The nights were long, and the stars were stark. This whole sky would give you something to see if you could get out of town. The days are the best. When the sun is out and the wind is absent, the rocks are guaranteed to be warm enough. Like a little forgotten secret, the nature is constantly whispering. It was these moments at the crag which would stir my imagination. We all needed this freedom, this feeling. Tim was unemployed like me and working hard to quit drinking. Tutent was on a break from work and had rambled back to Colorado. In its simplicity, the desert gave us all the answers we needed. This is episode 16 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and we are in the home stretch of the book. I'm moving uh, to Durango, which uh, happened about 10 years ago now as I'm reading this story. A big, big development in my life and one of the best decisions I've ever made. This episode is brought to you by Sticker Art. You can check those guys out at stickerart.com. They are based here in Durango, Colorado, where we are as well. Every sticker tells a story, and you can get 20% off by entering the coupon code DIRTBAG at checkout. You can support this podcast and the climbing zine at the links in our show notes, or just going to the link in our bio on our Instagram page to check out our store to get stickers, merch, zines, books, and even more. Let's get into the home stretch here for my dirt bags, for my climbers, and for the people who want to be dirt bag climbers. This is episode 16 of the Dirt Bag State of Mind podcast. The woman who owned the house was a sweet, retired librarian, and she took care of her husband, who had aged faster than she had. He was showing signs of early Alzheimer's. He was sweet, too, and sad. I can only imagine what it's like to lose your memory. They were my saviors. I not only had a place to stay, but the place was like a palace. Two bedrooms, a solarium, a garage, an entertainment room, and a nice spacious living room. A peaceful place to figure out my life. I'd successfully escaped the office life, but the weirdest thing was, I wanted back in. I hit the ground running in Durango. I was no longer wired to be lazy. I wanted to get a job like I had at the college back in Gunny. Naturally, I set up meetings at the college there too, which was similar to Western, a small liberal arts college with just a few thousand students. I met with the president. She was brand new. They were faced with the same budget cutbacks that Western was. There was simply nothing available. I pounded the pavement in town and looked for jobs. It was rough. I just couldn't find anything. I interviewed for smaller writing jobs, but couldn't get anything. I had a small little nest egg of retirement for my last three years. All of a sudden, it was like I was a retired 32-year-old living in the plush middle-class home just outside of town. There were many things to worry about, but I was fortunate. I had a tiny bit of money and I had a roof over my head. The economy would come back, right? I'd find a job eventually. I wasn't proud. I'd even go back to washing dishes if I had to. And like always, I turned to nature and climbing for salvation. It was the desert, again, 
Like so many years before, that gave me hope and meaning. Durango was a perfect juxtaposition of mountains and desert. To the north and the east were endless mountains and wilderness. You could be in the largest wilderness area in Colorado, in fact, the Weminuch, in less than an hour from leaving town. It was that Colorado Plateau desert, though, that captured me again. Now, the fight for my soul was a fight for purpose. I could handle being broke and unemployed. I'd been those things before. But losing my drive and purpose, that would be the death of my soul. Fortunately, I did not fight the good fight alone. Tim had moved to Durango at exactly the same time. He left a job and moved there to start a new relationship. He was also fighting the demons of alcoholism, which had plagued him for some time. Then, just like the old days, two-tenths Timmy rolled through town, and of course, we went to the desert. This was my first of my winter experiences in Indian Creek. The snow that had settled on the ridges and buttresses painted a picture of a different place. A place before the modern climbers had claimed this land as a major destination on the circuit. Essentially, we had it to ourselves. Occasionally in the winter, you'll run into a party or two from Moab, Durango, or Telluride. But more or less, it's just you and the rangers out there, and the lizards and the bunnies and the birds. There is always an intoxication at Indian Creek. The feeling just changes from season to season. The nights would be cold, frigid, so we huddled around a fire or were content and sheltered in a sleeping bag. The nights were long and the stars were stark. This whole sky would give you something to see if we could get out of town. The days are the best. When the sun is out and the wind is absent, the rock is guaranteed to be warm enough. Like a forgotten secret, nature is constantly whispering. It was these moments at the crag which would stir my imagination. We all needed this freedom, this feeling. Tim was unemployed like me and working hard to quit drinking. Tutent was on a break from work and had rambled back to Colorado. In its simplicity, the desert would give us the answers we needed. What was going on in my friends' minds, I'll never truly know. But I was wondering if I'd ever be able to get back that enthusiasm and momentum I just had and lost. Would I be able to continue my career as a writer? I knew that was the only thing I'd be able to do for a living. The restaurant business was work, but it was not a career for me. Washing dishes enabled me to live hand to mouth, but that's not enough to support a family. And when would I find a woman like Lynn again? My heart was so drawn to Durango in the desert. I had enough confidence in my decision, but there was always a lingering doubt. Did my own selfishness lead me down the wrong road? Looking out at the vast desert at high noon with my two best friends, intoxicated by sunshine and the simple brotherhood of the rope, I thought for damn sure I was on the right path. Two tents stayed for about another month, and we got into a groove of heading out to Indian Creek for two or three days and then coming back to the dirtbag mansion the name we'd given the house, and then going back out to the creek. In no uncertain terms, my soul was saved by the desert. But as I'd learned before, many times over, in the modern world, a man must continually fight for his place in the world. My way of fighting was writing. I had a little place in the living room to write. I laid down two yoga blankets and sat on them for as long as I could while I wrote at this little table. It was like my solo pilgrimage. The pieces had finally come together to do my own thing with writing. And how odd was it that it took being jobless in the downturn of the economy to find my sweet spot with the thing I wanted to do for a living more than anything. Of course, like everything, the time was limited. I was making a bad financial decision, liquidating my retirement funds before I was anywhere near the age of retiring. But I found peace of mind. I also thought of all the other people who were unemployed by this recession, and I felt fortunate that I still had a passion. 
I also felt fortunate that I didn't have a mortgage to pay or a family to support. My dreams were still in my grasp. What more could a man ask for in such a precarious position? It took months to actually get my first story with the paper going. I wasn't a local and therefore didn't know what was going on around town, so I had no story ideas. All the writing I was doing was unpaid, just tales I wanted to tell from the last few years I didn't have time before when I was working in the office full-time. One day, in the throes of winter, I came across an event in Uray, the ice-climbing center of Colorado, just two hours north, called Gimps on Ice, put on by Paradox Sports. It was a totally politically incorrect name for a festival, a climbing event where disabled climbers gathered to celebrate unity in climbing on ice. I'd quit ice climbing years ago, but when the Telegraph said I could write the article, I figured I had to come out of retirement. Several years earlier, I'd become acquainted with Paradox by a random encounter in Indian Creek. We were out there to celebrate Creeksgiving, the holiday we created at Thanksgiving. Basically a bunch of dirtbags eating well, dressing up in costumes, and having dance parties. And this particular year, it was raining like crazy. When it rains in the desert, climbing just doesn't happen. So those of us who had our bikes on top of our cars went for a little tour to get some exercise. Halfway up the Beef Basin Road, we saw this car driving back and forth. It had Texas plates with a handicapped tag hanging off the rearview mirror. We were sure this person was not a climber and was wildly lost. The car slowed down and the guy got out. We watched him step out of the car and the guy was missing a leg. He set his artificial leg onto the dirt and asked for a lighter. He lit up a cigarette and told him he was looking for his friend, but he couldn't find him. His name was Chad and he was a veteran. His leg had been blown off by a bomb in Iraq. He had the look of a hippie with the long-gone stare of a veteran of war. Years ago, when 9-11 happened, I was full of anger when we went to war, but I never had to go to war. Chad did. I listened to his every word. He risked his life and gave his leg for the war. I simply raised my voice in college. His actions spoke louder. That night, he told us stories about war and paradox sports and also engaged in some friendly wrestling in the dirt. Just like that, we had a new friend in the crew. At the GIMPS event, everyone had a story. It was a gold mine for a writer like me, desperate not to only tell my own stories, but those of other people. Mine could only be told with the grace and prose and poetry. These people were walking, talking, living, breathing miracles. One-Armed Pete was one of the first guys I met. He was a former Durango guy. I'd read an article about him in Climbing Magazine by Jarm Sherman in 2000 back in those pre-internet climbing website days when I read and memorized every photo and line in the magazines. He was born with a right arm that was only developed to his elbow, and he was a better climber than many with two fully formed arms. Then there was Stacy. He was a giant of a guy who probably seemed intimidating until he spoke a single word that changed everything. You could just tell he was a trouble but lovable teddy bear. I'd started a climbing zine and showed Stacy a copy when we met. The first sentence in the climbing zine I ever put together was, without climbing, I'd be dead or in jail. Stacy read that line and a tingle went down his spine. He gave me a crazy look and told me the same thing was true for him. Stacy was a vet too, but came back all intact. But just because you don't lose a limb at war doesn't mean you come back and everything's the same. Stacy was deeply affected by PTSD and became addicted to drugs and alcohol after he returned from Iraq and Afghanistan which turned him into a suicidal mess, a living casualty of war. A climb in the flat irons of Boulder saved his life, gave him something to live for. 
It was the first and only time a deep bond was cemented in my life by a single sentence. We were buddies forever, right then and there, and it was validation in this risk, this leap I was taking in my life. Everyone at Gimps on Ice had these crazy stories. And though it might seem counterintuitive, ice climbing is the perfect sport for someone who is missing a limb. Everyone already uses ice tools for their hands and crampons for their feet. When I watched guys like One-Armed Pete climb ice, it didn't seem like anything was missing. He flowed smoothly up the vertical ice, one swing of the ice tool at a time. From this whole crew, I made some lifelong friends in a weekend, wrote my first story for the new newspaper gig, and gained that ever-important thing called perspective. Though I was struggling and was going to struggle some more, there are many things in life to remain positive about, and climbing was the key to unlocking it all. After months of ferocious riding, climbing, getting to know my new town, and extreme relaxing compared to retirement, spring was over and the owners returned to their house. Two Tent came back for another visit and helped me clean the place from top to bottom. The owners were pleased. I'd done my job, and I'd started to lay a foundation in this town that very much suited me. But I still didn't have a steady job. And I started to have dreams of Yosemite again. And what does a climber dreaming of climbing do when he does not have a job? Two Tent and I teamed up with Sean and met him in Gunnison. Sean and I had planned a trip together one summer a few years back, but had an argument about something stupid and didn't do the trip together. We fought like brothers, but we also had brotherly love. We stashed the Freedom Mobile at a friend's house, packed up Sean and Two Tent's vehicles, and rallied out to Yosemite. It had been years since I'd been there with Two Tent. There were signs from the beginning. Omens. The first was the weed smoking incident that probably saved our lives. We were in the thick of it in Nevada, headed west on Highway 50, the loneliest highway in America, the ocean of desert that separates Colorado from California. We stopped along the roadside at an incognito place to smoke a bowl. Some say marijuana impairs driving, but in the heart of the desert, I'd argue that it helps. It breaks the monotony, makes the clouds look more interesting and the music more soothing. Embrace the road. So I smoked some herb, and we did some push-ups to balance it out, and then we were back on the road. Three miles in, there was a woman on the side of the road waving her hands frantically, and then we saw why. An 18-wheeler flipped over sideways in the oncoming lane. The scene had an aura of death. Was the driver alive? It didn't look like it. And wait, what if we had not stopped? Was there a higher power at hand, or were we just lucky? Climbers need luck, sometimes as much as they need skill. And we're all facing that semi that is death. We just hope to dodge it, day after day. We drove slowly, bypassing the semi, which incredibly didn't block off the road, only the other lane. It was the perfect trio to balance out personalities. Two Tent Timmy and my brother from another mother, Sean. Two Tent is the nicest guy in the world, soft-spoken and easygoing. Sean is incredibly driven, believes he can do anything, and he's an egg-climbing master. I'm driven and often selfish, but climbing is what keeps me in check. When I climb with someone, often, that means I love them. And what I love about climbing is the necessary teamwork. Nothing can be accomplished alone. It forces me to elevate, to grow. We slept off the side of the road in the Nevada desert that night. The type of sleep you have when you're far away from home and you're surrounded by the odd desert in an unfamiliar place. We steered through Nevada into California, but made all the wrong turns. Relieved to be in California, we slept in a parking lot and awoke early before we were noticed. Way too late, we rolled into Yosemite. 
Yosemite Valley stopped me dead in my tracks the first time, but now everything is a ritual. El Capitan is still there and still causes tourists to lose their minds. They just halt their cars and stand in the road and stare. Tourists are stupid. And maybe we are as well. We had driven a thousand miles to toil on faces of stone. The ritual, arrive, meet up with friends, do some cragging, pick an objective, and they begin the ritual of all rituals, packing the hall bag. We set up at Scott's house in Peresta. His time had run out at the greenhouse, but now he was just living up the road with his girlfriend. The tarp. Everything was laid out on the tarp, and the absurdity of aid climbing started to settle in. So much gear. So much water. Why were we doing this again? Smoked weed. Spaced out. Focused on the task at hand. Forgetting one small piece of gear could derail the whole climb. Fitted all in the hall bag. It was always overflowing. Do we have the poop tube? Were we ready to move slowly up an overhanging wall? Was this going to be fun? Were we still psyched? We humped all the gear to the base of the wall. The hike in the base of the wall were littered with trash and booty, but the booty was questionable. We found a couple of old pitons and carabiners, gear that was probably dropped years ago, and then the storms of spring washed them down into the gully. We camped at the base of the wall, and in the morning we planned to start up. It's two tents, first aid climb. Sean has climbed El Capitan. He's the only veteran of big wall climbing. Two tent was new to it all. He'd never even used ascenders. After the usual rituals of necessity, oatmeal, coffee, and pooping, we readied ourselves for a climb. The fourth class traversing section must be negotiated, and immediately the struggle began. We clipped into a fixed rope as we moved the pig along. The pig, this beast of burden, was about to unleash its awkward and cruel nature upon us. Instead of shuffling the hall bag along, Two Tent hoisted it on his back just like a normal pack. Just minutes after doing this, while making a delicate move on a step across, he slipped. All of a sudden, he was turned upside down. Fuck. If he hadn't been clipped to that fixed rope, he would have just fallen to his death. We pulled him upright, and his look of terror and shock was something I'd never seen in my years of climbing with him. His face was all scratched up and bleeding. A lesser man would have suggested retreat, but we carried on, and then it was time for him to learn how to jug. A severely overhanging bolt ladder started the climb. When it was time for Two Tent to Jumar up, he was sent into the space. Sean carefully lowered him out from the belay, and then, hanging in space with 500 feet of air below him, on one of the world's steepest big walls, he learned. I led more straightforward terrain, and then, when the aid climbing became more difficult, Sean took over. He loved the challenge of tricky aid. For me, it's means to an end. Free climbing is my thing. And it was too tense thing as well. We hung in an uncomfortable belay and listened to music. Willie Nelson singing Sad Country. We're in our own moment of despair. Two Tent was brought into this idea of aid climbing, when I'm sure all he wanted to do was go up free routes by day and gather around to eat, drink, and be merry by night. And who wouldn't want to do that? What was the point of all of this? El Capitan was the point. The pitch had some strange aid rating of C2F, and much of the fixed gear had been removed or had fallen out. Sean meticulously worked through everything. I had concerns about him on this trip. He was coming off a sickness that he concluded was either Rocky Mountain tick fever or dengue from a recent trip to Thailand. Either way, his body was not at 100%. 
His mind, however, was at full speed, and he had a strong desire for success on Yosemite's big walls. It was at one of those blaze that seemed like an eternity, and I questioned our sanity and the expected outcome of this experience in my mind. The silence was deafening and puzzling. I was willing to suffer, but I think too tent was wondering what the hell he'd gotten on board with in this plan. Eventually, Sean completed the pitch. When I jugged up, I was impressed by his creativity with nuts, hooks, and small cams. By late afternoon, we'd arrived at the Iwani Ledge, and we were done with hauling for the day. Time to set ourselves up for success the following day. I led another pitch and took a 20-footer when a nut popped. Sean was on his way to drifting asleep when I fell, and the tension on his grigri snapped him back to reality. The fall energizes both. A fall can be liberating, and this one certainly was. I pulled up on the rope and completed the pitch. That night was quiet and defeating. It was two tenths first bivy. I typically either feel exhaustedly comfortable or full of dread when not sleeping on a wall. This time was the latter. While it was comfortable, the vibes were wearing on me. I awoke in the middle of the night to a light rain and babbled to my companions about starting to climb. Delusion. The rain didn't last, and we woke up in the morning and drank coffee, ate oatmeal, and pooped. A haze of fog surrounded us, giving us the illusion that we were about to be socked in a storm. More dread, more fear, more of a sense that we were fighting against the gods of the walls and karma. After jugging up to our high point, we were totally immersed in the fog. Should we bail? If you go down, you can always go back up, a big wall climber once told me. That voice rang true, and we decided to bail. Bailing on an overhanging wall while carrying a haul bag was something I'd never done. Sean quickly figured out a system, and the first person down clipped themselves into directional so they could reach the belay. At one point, I spent about five minutes trying to swing into a bolted belay. Dangling above this foggy, mysterious void, I felt frustration and a slight hatred for this form of climbing. When it's good, it's good. But when it's purely a struggle, more than any other discipline, it makes me wonder why. Why should I do this? When we arrived back to the horizontal, the sky opened up to blue. We could have continued to the top and started our trip with success. But instead, it's midday and time for ice cream and beer. Tourists asked us questions and took our photos. Is it scary up there? They asked. No worse than it is down here in this strange horizontal world, I think. Yeah, it can be scary, I actually say. It can. I have mixed feelings about wall climbing. The following week and a half was stormy and cold. With bad weather, but why do we always say bad? It's just bad for climbing, but it's good for life. We turned into tourists ourselves. Cloudy, rainy, and snowy days change our routine into survival. Days were spent at the Curry Village Lodge, huddled up to do internet work. There are others like us, from all sorts of countries that fester. Yosemite is not the best place for festering. It's not the worst either. Amenities galore, and there's time and places to write. I got a call from my friend John, who had just had a climbing accident in the Black Canyon. He fell when a ledge collapsed on him when he was trying to reach a rappel. After his time in the hospital, his worst injury was a broken nose. He was in good spirits. Like a punch-drunk boxer, he will return to climbing hard routes in the black. One night, I talked to my parents on the phone and gave them an update on my trip. My parents always show unconditional love, and through this episode of vagabonding and unemployment, they were still supportive. During this phone call, they have some sad news. My brother's good friend from childhood succumbed to brain cancer. 
He's gone, and his wife was about to deliver their baby. It snowed around me, and gloomy, snowy weather fit the news. What can you really say about a young man dying? Finally, we got tired of the gloom and went to the beach. Some people dream of vacations at the beach. For us, it was just a distraction. We secured a small cottage to stay on a couch surfing website. These people were super hippies, real California hippies, and they basically handed us the keys to their house upon arrival. There was a rabbit, and we fed him lettuce. How did they know we could trust us? I guess there wasn't much to steal. Books seemed to be their most valuable possession. I think the world would be a better place if more people's most valuable possessions were books. When we returned to the valley, there was a good weather window, so we set our hearts on El Capitan. We chose Lurking Fear, one of the more moderate routes on the captain. Again, we laid out the tarp and packed up. After a week and a half of storms, El Cap was drying up. Two tent left, back to Oregon for work, and I stayed with Sean, who finally seemed to be back at 100%. If things went perfectly, we could climb El Cap and then head back home. Plus, there was a carrot dangling at the top of the wall. His girlfriend had a timeshare trade with someone in Las Vegas, and we could stay there for a few days on our way back to Colorado. There was a lazy river and everything. We could live like dirtbag ballers. El Capitan stood proudly as ever, with long streaks of water running down its side in the shade. In the sun, everything was drying out. An ocean of granite, and we were about to set sail. Our first day was full of slow progress. We brought a portalage, and hauling, like always, was a pain. Sean led for the day, and I sunk into cleaning and staring. Lots of staring. It was nice to be up on El Cap. We set up the portalage. Well, rather, we fought with it and constantly adjusted it. Finally, it was secure and mostly even. It was blissful. We drank a beer that we'd stashed in the hall bag. We'd achieved a level of happiness that we'd been seeking for the last two weeks. Sean loved the mechanics of aid climbing, and I was grateful to be up there with him. The next morning, we broke down the portalage. It was my lead. I set off with a gigantic rack. The pitch started with a section that you could either aid with hooks or free climb at 510. I tried to free climb, but the massive rack weighed me down. I must have gone up and down 10 times. Defeated, I climbed back down to the belay and sat there in frustration. If I was a better aid climber, I would have committed to using hooks, but the free climber in me was convinced that I could complete the section. After sitting at the belay for an hour and contemplating, I went up without the rack, climbed through the section, and once I was at a ledge higher up, I hauled up the rack. A revelation, float like a butterfly. Our progress was painfully slow, but we had the route to ourselves. We only managed a few pitches that day. Failure was in the air. Our movement was snail-like, and we didn't have enough food to be up there for the pace that we were moving. On the last pitch Sean cleaned, he left several nuts in the crack that were difficult to remove. It was implied that we would bail the next day. The portal ledge was less glorious than the night before. After all, this was the final day in the vertical on a trip full of failures. I've been climbing long enough to know that every success is built upon failure. Plus, Sean and I were getting along and working together, and that alone was a success. In the morning, I woke up uncomfortable, and I had morning wood. I can say that in my days of climbing, there is nothing that can compare to the dismal letdown of waking up next to another man on a portal ledge when you have morning wood. Of course, I didn't say a word about my condition, and it quickly went away once I realized where I was. We started water for coffee and oatmeal. Suddenly, we noticed a party behind us, and they were moving fast. Quickly, they arrived at our perch. 
What took us two days to climb and haul, they just completed as we took our first sips of coffee. Bastards. The leader had removed some of the nuts we'd left in the crack below that we'd planned to retrieve when we bailed. They were full of energy, and we were full of defeat. There was an argument between the leader and us. He was trying to booty our nuts. I didn't realize you were free climbing, he said, thinking that the only reason to leave gear in the crack below was that we were working on a free climbing attempt. We didn't explain ourselves very well, but got most of our gear back from him. This guy was going for El Cap in a day and was preoccupied with getting a couple small pieces of free gear. Only a climber would be such a dirtbag. Luckily, his buddy was much friendlier. He told us it was cool that we were climbing El Cap in the style that we were. I thought exactly the opposite. They had nothing but one rope and a rack of gear, going for it, climbing the wall in a day, proud. His forearms oozed pure strength. He said he'd never used a haul bag or a ledge. He just did everything in a day. He wasn't a famous climber we'd ever heard of, just another low-key badass flying under the radar. We liked him and hoped to climb like him someday. Instead, we would bail with a very heavy haul bag and port a ledge. We spent our day figuring out the logistics of bailing with the heavy loads. We did the walk of shame along the base of El Cap and tried not to make eye contact so we wouldn't have to explain our predicament. Then we had a beer and stared at El Cap from the meadow. And then we had ice cream and stared at Half Dome from another meadow. The next day, we left for Las Vegas and then went back home to Colorado. I escaped to Crested Butte for the rest of the summer and lived in a small trailer with my buddy Shane. I partied too much and wrote too little. I washed some dishes, but other than that, I didn't really have work. I was lost and floating. When a friend of a friend offered me a gig trimming marijuana in Southern Oregon, I couldn't pass it up. I was hard up for money, and at this point I had no pride. Twelve of us sat at a picnic table and plucked buds of weed from their plants, all day every day. There was an air of paranoia because the feds were in town doing flyovers in planes, checking to see if the operations were above the legal limit. The owner of the property was a drunk and drank all day every day. We were offered as much beer as we wanted, and I tried to hold out for as long as I could. I waited until everyone else had one, and then I started drinking. Day after day, sitting and drinking, all romantic notions I'd given up of the weed trimming dissipated. After the two weeks that seemed like two months, we were released from the property. Two weeks without exercise, and I felt like hell. I wandered Oregon some after that because we'd expected to work longer than two weeks. But all I wanted was to get back to Colorado. I felt lost. After a few days of climbing at Smith Rocks, I changed my plane ticket and arrived back home. Tim was there at the airport to pick me up, and I couch surfed at his place until my house-sitting gig started. I moved into yet another nice middle-class house for a few months. The owners were horse people, and they said there was a neighbor who had a bunch of horses and needed some help. They said she would pay cash. So naturally, I inquired. This job was the shit. Or rather, it involved shit. The lady who was sweet and who had a brother who was a climber that died young needed help with mucking the areas where the horses hung out. At this point, a year being unemployed, I no longer had any pride. I mucked the horse shit. Again, I got into a routine of riding. Damn, if that was the only thing that saved me. I was still climbing, but I knew then and forever, climbing was only an ingredient and a constant. It would never save me. I couldn't make money from climbing. I couldn't make love to it, and it could not feed me. Eventually, the owners of the house came back, like they always do, and for the first time, I rented a place in town. 
I'd always lived in the outskirts of Durango and never fully immersed myself in the city limits. I rented a room from a couple I'd become friends with. The house was right next to the library. In all these wandering years, a library was just as much as my home as any place I was renting for the short term. Winter's blanket covered Durango, and our sleepy place was a nice little home, and it was comforting to live with friends instead of all alone in a big place. I could just hop on a bike and head over to yoga or to the coffee shop to read a book. On a sunny January morning, I got the kind of phone call that you absolutely never, ever want to get. Adam had died in an avalanche. Tim was ice climbing in Uray when he got the news, and he left me a message in the middle of the night I didn't get until the morning. It was the end of innocence for our friends. I'd never lost a close friend from my old gunny crew before. Everyone handles death differently, but I learned then and forever that the closer you are to the person and the more you depend on them the day to day, the deeper it cuts. I wasn't as close to Adam as some of my other friends like Sean and Tim. I had to call several friends and break the news to them. Immediately, I felt Adam's spirit with me. He was watching over me, just as he had when I needed a couch to crash on in my dark days in Salt Lake City. The dream was not over, but he had departed from his body and would now only be a part of my dreams in the spiritual form. I cried and cried and wrote out a little something for Adam that I sent to the local paper back in the Gunnison Valley. I wished I could have known him more. He believed in me and my writing in a time when I did not, in those dark days. He was my light. And through feeling his presence after his death, I knew he would continue to be a light. That is episode 16 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal. Reading the end of, of this chapter, of this section, you know, of course, makes me think of my friend Adam. Adam Lawton was his full name, and I've written a couple couple things about him. Like I said, I, I, I do wish I could have got to know him better, and it would have been really cool to see what he would have been like um, as we all grew older together. The first time I met Adam... He was, uh, we were assigned to work on this like leave no trace presentation in the recreation class. And I think the first thing he told me, he's like, man, I got to stop doing ecstasy. <laughs> and I just thought that was like the most transparent thing I'd heard from someone, you know? Um, and I think there's a lot of these younger people too that uh, like myself, you know, kind of dabble in trying drugs and stuff. And, um, it's not a good look if you continue to do that heavily for a while. And he eventually did get off ecstasy and he was totally addicted to the outdoors, having experiences. And he was such a positive, positive, encouraging person. And he was really the first person who was like overly excited about my writing and really, really encouraged me. And it is kind of sad that I was, you know, so depressed in that time period when I was staying with him, but he took care of me and I still feel his spirit all the time. But if you do want to read more about Adam, um, I have written some things on climbingzine.com and, and lukemehall.com that you can check out and learn more about our buddy, Adam Lawton. He was a great soul. You can support this podcast and the Climbing Zine by checking out the links in your show notes. Subscribing is the best way to support us. And we also have a Patreon account. 
And even if you're a traveling climber and you don't have a reliable address, you can still choose the dirt bag treatment. And that means we'll check in with you before each issue of the climbing zine comes out. And it does come out three times a year. Musical tracks are from Ketza and Simon Panrucker. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. And I'm Luke Mehal from the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast coming at you from sunny Durango, Colorado. <laughs>